Good evening, listeners. My name is Mordecai Koren, and I am your host for today's episode of the Focal Point Podcast. Today, I am joined by Dominic Ashcroft, the co-head of Leverage Finance for the European, Middle East, and African region for Goldman Sachs and currently managing director. Good evening, Dominic. How are you today? Yeah, good, thank you. Right, so I think to start, uh, before we dive into a little more Leverage Finance, it'd be great to to learn a little bit more about you and, and what your role entails. So thank you, uh, firstly, for inviting me to the podcast. I have to say, I was a little in awe of some of the previous people you have had on, especially I was listening to yesterday, the Howard Marks interview, so the founder of Oaktree. Oaktree is one of our you know, biggest clients. So to, you know, to listen to his perspective, it was pretty insightful. If anyone's not listened to it, I'd, I'd recommend sort of going back and, uh, and having a listen. So as you said, so I co-run our sub investor grade capital markets business in Europe, Middle East and Africa, and have day-to-day responsibilities for covering you know, many of our telco, media and technology your clients from a financing you know, perspective you know, here in Europe. I guess this sort of translates into two roles. One is you know, risk-taking role in that I'm responsible for the capital we commit to companies where we're using Goldman Sachs balance sheet to underwrite debt transactions, the expectation that we will eventually sell to investors like Oaktree. Um, you know, in these underwritten transactions, we guarantee the company a maximum cost of debt, so a maximum coupon. And then we're able to sell that debt, that coupon or better, we make a fee. We have to sell that debt at a higher coupon, potentially make a loss you on that transaction. So that's the risk part of my job. The second role is a coverage, your role, as I said, I'm responsible for covering our TMT clients. And this requires sort of coming up with ideas, trying to help those clients optimize capital structures and enable them to execute strategic transactions of financing M&A. In a pre-COVID world, I think similar to what other people have sort of said on the on the podcast, that involved doing quite a bit of travel across Europe, but also seeing clients in the US, the Middle East, and Africa, also out to Asia. In a, in a post-COVID world, that means less travel. In fact, I've not flown for about 12 months. And so I think when we reverse and return to normality, some of that change will stay and we'll do more video conferences. I think some of it is hard to replace in-person interaction with clients. I think some of it will remain. I guess in a pre-COVID world, now that we're in a COVID world, the landscape has kind of changed. And one of the things that people consider or are attracted to with investment banking is that it's very dynamic, um, as you said, seeing clients in US, Middle East, and Asia. So I think as a follow-up question, I'd like to ask you, what is your favorite thing about the role? I think it's got to be you're trying to help clients grow their businesses. So, so obviously banking generally is a client-orientated business. So there's bits of our business that invest, you know, but I work in the you know, mainly advisory side of our, our business. So we're very client-orientated. And I think given the universe of clients that we cover in the sub-investment grade space, they tend not to be huge multinational conglomerates, which would ordinarily be covered in the investment grade rated market. Many of our clients are privately owned, led by entrepreneurs or private investors. And we're often financing companies to enable them to expand businesses. And so within that universe, we often find companies in subsectors, very few similar companies that have raised financing before. So I think judgment you know, becomes pretty important when you think about the characteristics of that business and, and whether it will be attractive to debt investors. And then within my coverage sector of telecoms, media and technology, we have full spectrum of businesses from developed telco or cable TV companies, you know, right the way through to brand new sort of recently established technology companies. So 
it's a pretty challenging and diverse space. You joined Goldman Sachs in, in July of 2002, and you spent most of your career there. So could you tell us a little bit about your journey to Goldman Sachs and, and your journey in Goldman Sachs from, I guess, starting out as an analyst to becoming the, the managerial director you are today? Yeah, I, I've said growing up, I never really wanted to be an investment banker. So I, I think I, up until the age of 16, I wanted to be a doctor. Uh, then I figured that I didn't actually like the side of blood. So I decided to be an engineer like my dad. And then my dad convinced me not to be an engineer. And so I ended up falling into economics at university. And then I interviewed on the milk round and, and sort of got a job at, uh, at Goldman's. You know, two weeks after graduating, I started you know, initially with five weeks in New York, where we did training with the other you know, global analysts. And then I joined the UK advisory you know, team where we were responsible for covering clients in the UK and Ireland. I worked on a range of deals. First deal was selling an international seed manufacturing business. And then I advised on Sainsbury's potentially taking over a Safeway in the UK, which actually thinking about that transaction made me feel old because I'm sure many people who are going to listen to this podcast will actually never have heard of Safeway, which at the time was, I think, the fifth largest supermarket in the UK, which I think sort of just shows you, you know, how things change. After a year in the UK advisory team, you know, Goldman set up the financing group, which merged our debt, equity, and derivative businesses into one place. And at that time, I moved from an advisory context into the high yield or junk bond team where I've been ever since. And so the team has grown. We've encompassed other businesses, but that's fundamentally where I've been ever since and, and sort of running our financing product for sub-investor grade uh, your companies. G given that you have worked so long at Goldman Sachs, not to make you feel old, I'm sure there have been some highs and lows to this journey. So to have a career that long, have a career spanning over so many crises, it requires a, a certain amount of resilience. So if you could give us some insight on that, that'd be great. Yeah, obviously only highs, and I'm only joking. So highs and lows, I mean, in reality, given Given the job that I do, a lot of the highs and lows are, are sort of linked to the markets. You know, good markets, bad markets normally create different amounts of stress, particularly where a big part of our job is taking risk on ultimately selling you know, debt to the market. But you know, some of the more acute sort of ups and downs are, are the ones that are a little bit more personal. So I think probably both the highs and the lows where it's linked a little bit more closely to the risk judgment that you're taking and then having that risk judgment tested in the market is probably where I've seen sort of most highs and lows from a market perspective. You know, on the market, in particular, joined Goldman's at the end of the TMT bubble bursting in 2002. So I only saw the aftermath of that market dislocation and not the run-up. On a bigger scale market dislocations, I lived through either side of the financial crisis, the Euro debt crisis, and then last year you know, with COVID. I think all three were obviously different in terms of how they came about, but all resulted in a pretty substantial paradigm shift in the assumptions that people were making and were able to make about value. And I think in all cases, many of positions that we had underwritten, where again, we promised the company a maximum coupon on their debt and you're seeing equity markets dislocate by tens of percentage points over a very short period of time you quickly move into territory where you might need to pay investors a higher coupon than that maximum coupon you promised and therefore you may lose money on pretty large emotional sides of capital which in itself creates quite a bit of stress and so i think in those instances I, you realize that the real skill of the job is not necessarily just the judgment at any particular moment in time in terms of the relative value where you can sell risk but also having a view on sort of fundamental sort of credit quality of businesses that you think even in bad times, you'll be able to find buyers to be able to create liquidity and take positions. So yeah, our CFO always reminds us that we're in the logistics business and not storage business. And so our job is to find liquidity, underwrite risk and find liquidity and then sort of move on. I think the 
personal high points of the job, though, is where your judgment is maybe differentiated from your competitors, but where maybe you have to spend a bit more time convincing investors that your judgment is right. And I think in those instances, you feel like you've had more impact to the client. I think those are probably the most rewarding. To bring the questions now to a little bit more topical concept, you appeared on, on Goldman Sachs Exchange in September and you described sentiment as being cautiously optimistic. Since then, we've had kind of news about a vaccine, people actually starting to get vaccinated in quite large volumes. We've had a Biden presidency, and we also saw the yields of triple C bonds actually go below the level that we had seen in a pre-COVID environment in October of 2008. 19. So has much changed? Could you give us an idea of the landscape? And do you feel that there is a little bit of over optimism in the market, given the yields that we are seeing on, on high yield debt currently? So that's a really good question. And I think in, in retrospect, that probably wasn't a bad term to use, cautiously optimistic at the time, given what we subsequently saw, although there were many ups and downs along the way. Thinking about it from a UK perspective, we obviously had the November lockdown, followed by the positive vaccine news, the negative rise in infections that we saw in December that obviously led to the new year lockdown that we're living through hopefully everyone's safe and well yeah, at the moment. Pretty amazingly, the market throughout that period has been functioning incredibly well. Investors have been deploying cash, often in record you know, amount, and investing in assets. Interest costs being charged by the market have generally been reducing, and the most acutely affected COVID sectors, who had obviously seen a significant increase in interest costs since March, have subsequently seen a pretty dramatic fall in where they can access the markets. Yeah, also, some of the other near-term risks have been removed, or at least reduced the cliff edge Brexit that people were all worried about didn't materialize. We have a new US president in what was eventually a pretty peaceful you know, transition. And, and with the vaccine rollout, we now have a path or at least a potential path to see the light at the end of the tunnel. And it's pretty amazing that all of that happened in less than 12 months from a market perspective. I guess the biggest differences between this crisis and the crisis you talked about in, in 2008 is that it's a pandemic-led crisis and not necessarily a capital-led crisis. Tying that into my next question, is there a market in insight that you think people are neglecting and why do you think that is? Uh, you, you hinted it on the last yeah, question where I, I think there are things that people might be neglecting, actually potentially on the upside as well as the downside. The upside potential, there are arguments to say that we're not being bullish enough in the current outlook. Prolonged periods of zero rate, particularly in the US, obviously just change the shift in terms of how people value assets. The catch-up effects when economies reopen and people are allowed to spend again. Some commentators are making the comparison to the roaring 20s to the Spanish flu epidemic to, to this day. But let's focus on the downside risk because I think those are the things that people, you're obviously sort of wary at from a value perspective. Yeah, I think the first one, which is probably the most near-term is changes in near-term near expectations as to when the recovery sort of comes through. And I think the easiest way to quantify that is obviously vaccine rollout, infection rates, and then when we expect your relaxation of restrictions. We see that particularly in subsectors within our coverage universe, travel, retail exposed businesses, in terms of where they're trading and where we think they would have market access. That's not necessarily the market not paying enough attention, but just people readjusting to the facts that become apparent. I think two of the elements are a little bit longer away. The second one is inflation. So the three, I studied economics at university in the late 90s and early 2000s, where a big chunk of the course was about inflation and controlling it. And we rarely now talk about inflation. And, and probably rightly so, as headline inflation has remained stubbornly low for what seems like forever. And with unemployment creeping up and demand falling, it's tough to see this jumping up tomorrow. But obviously, asset price inflation is real. Stock market, house prices, cost of art. And when we release some of that pent-up demand, does that cause the backdrop to change? And remember, it's because inflation has remained low. I think that central banks have obviously been able to keep rates where they are and wash the system with liquidity, which sort of leads into the third risk, which is sort of balance sheets, both sovereign, corporate and individual. And again, the risk
risk has sort of been taken out of ever-increasing fiscal positions because rates are so low. And so the interest burden in most cases, although the debt quantum's gone up, interest burden's actually fallen. But you know, once you have a stock of debt, you can't get rid of it overnight. And if interest rates start to rise, you start to see some of that risk around interest burden increasing. And so I think that's something that I'm not necessarily worried about in the next months or quarters, but I think in the medium term starts to play a role. And it wasn't that long ago from a Eurozone perspective that we had the sovereign debt crisis. And although some of the mechanisms have been reformed to help cope with that, there are definitive holes in those mechanisms. And the imbalances which caused the issues originally may be further exposed by some of the after effects that we see come out of COVID. So I think that's something that we continue to monitor sort of going forward. The tricky thing at the moment is given the amount of liquidity and buying power in the market, some of those normal signals or early warning signs are potentially not materializing, but it's often tough to realize the consequences until after the event. Some of those, I think it's something worth monitoring and maybe we can talk about that in a year's time as to whether any of those risks have sort of materialized. You worked on the record-breaking 10.9 billion high-yield offering for the French cable operator Numericable in April of 2014. What were the challenges and what were the main takeaways for you whilst working on such a high-profile and and record-breaking transaction? Good question. One of my favorite deals. So yeah, it's one of the largest deals I've been involved in and it's still one of the largest capital raises that's been done globally in the sub-investor grade market. We ended up raising just shy of $20 billion, both across the debt at New America, but also there was some holding company debt and some revolving credit facilities that we raised. So it was a big capital raise. Because it was an M&A deal and we were making an offer for another company, we underwrote the whole debt package, which again creates a little bit more stress in that we were on risk to ensure A, that we could raise a debt and B, that we could raise a debt within an interest rate ceiling that we had agreed to. And so if we were wrong, we may have to take some of that risk on balance sheet or we may end up losing money from a subsidized capital raise with the market. I think a couple of challenges that came mainly from the size. So firstly, credit judgment and making sure the way we presented the company to investors needed to be pretty spot on because we needed pretty much the whole market to participate. And that was not just the European market, but the US. And we also marketed it into the Asian markets as well. So we spent a huge amount of time with the team trying to anticipate concerns that investors might have and then proactively addressing them versus waiting for investors to raise the issues and then having to react. I think secondly, the way that we structured the deal, we needed to slice and dice the type of debt we were raising into as many different forms and pockets of demand as possible. So we raised dollars, we raised euros, we raised loans and bonds, we raised debt with different maturities, and we raised debt at different seniorities. So we raised debt that was secured on assets and then debt was unsecured. So the aim was to cast the net as wide as possible. So we weren't reliant on one type of investor or one pocket of demand to sell the deal. These two levers, anticipating issues and then appealing to as many investors as we could do, the aim was to generate momentum and subscription in the deal, which would hopefully allow us to optimize pricing terms and execution for the company. We ended up generating, I think, $100 billion of demand, which although I think it's been surpassed subsequently with a couple of actually GS-led investment grade deals in the US, I think at the time it was the largest order book that had ever been generated for a debt deal globally. And I think still remains the largest for some investment grade rated company, despite bigger deals having subsequently uh, sort of come through the market. Speaking about loans, Covenant Light loans were fairly rare 10 years ago, but now they occupy 93% of the whole market. After COVID was first announced and in the first quarter of 2020. Of course, depending on the sector that the company was in, maybe there was a little bit of diminishing of those covenant light loans, maybe, especially in the restaurant market, as opposed to the TMT sector where you are in, which I think has been more favored in 2020. Do you think that there will be a pushback against covenant light loans post-pandemic, given kind of uncertainty that events like this can happen? Or do you think that popularity of covenant light loans is inevitable, given the, the low interest rate 
environment that we are in currently and maybe that there is no alternative to equities? Yeah, good question. So I think we returned from the loan market issuance in 2011 and 2012 for at least a quarter or two. We thought that the phenomenon of covenant-like loans may dissipate in Europe and we move back to a covenanted you know, loan structure. That didn't happen. I think as a result of that, I think we've concluded that covenant-like loans are here to stay. The European market inherited them from the US where they've made up the vast majority of institutional loan market issuance over a pretty long period of time. And as the European institutional loan market or the non-commercial bank market has grown, I think their acceptance as the dominant form of loan issuance has become more embedded. Where I think the envelope has been pushed is in the trade-off between credit quality, interest rate and core protection. And so I'll explain this quickly in terms of what fundamentally the trade-off is. So when I first joined the capital markets desk, companies had generally a choice between issuing a loan that could be repaid at any time without penalty, so repay the par, but that had a, a maintenance covenant, i.e. something that was tested every three months to make sure you were performing and on track. Or you could issue a bond which you could not prepay for a number of years, but that was covenant light i.e. no ongoing testing. This made sense, I think, from an investor trade-off because if the company did better than expected in a loan, you would probably get refinanced with something that was cheaper for the company in the future, but you had the downside protection that if the company did worse than you anticipated, you would have a maintenance covenant. And then the trade-off for the bond was the other way around. So the bondholder has very little downside protection, i.e. no maintenance covenant, but in return, as the company performed well over time, their implied cost of debt fell. And because the bond had core protection, price of the bond would rise and the investor would make money through capital appreciation. The covenant-like phenomenon obviously removes that trade-off as there is no downside protection with the covenant. And if the company performs well, the loan doesn't trade up as that would imply the company could redeem the loan at par and face you know, the face value or, uh, and refinance it with something that had a lower interest rate. So I think where we've reached is a compromise that because of this asymmetric payoff of the loan, in general, the market has evolved into a covenant-like loan market, but where the investor remains sensitive to picking the better credits or better companies to minimize the downside risk they're taking from investing in loans. And so I think to your point, they've tended to shy away from many of the retail names, at least recently, and tended to invest in some of the more defensive or recurring credits. TMT is a perfect. You touched on the fact that covenant light loans was something that the European market inherited from the US market. In September, you gave a podcast with Goldman Sachs where you stated that one of the differences between the EU market and the US market was that some of the spreads between between uh, bonds were lower in the EU as opposed to the US due to the bond buying program. Um, so I guess another interesting question to ask you would be across EMEA, what are the most noticeable disparities in the leveraged finance market? Whilst there are some disparities, I think we've seen some disparities between Europe and the US through the sovereign debt crisis that was accentuated by Europe witnessing a bond buying program where we didn't see the same extent from a US perspective. Some of that on the investment grade side in the most recent crisis has been equalized as the Fed has been arguably as active as the ETB in terms of getting their bazooka out to be able to provide some downside protection to quality and, and sort of market prices. I think within EMEA and particularly looking within sort of Western Europe, the disparities between countries have become less dominant, I think, over the course of the last sort of 10, 15 years versus when I first you know, joined the desk. I think pre-financial crisis, I think there was noticeable differences in terms of how different companies in different countries financed their capital structures, or at least what their preferences were. And that was also driven by some of the activity of some of the more local orientated banks. And so we did see probably the UK was the most developed in terms of embracing the institutional market versus the French and maybe the German, Italian markets were still relatively closed and, and more dominated by their commercial banks. I think post-financial crisis, whilst we've not seen that completely disappear, we have seen a retrenchment of many 
many of the commercial banks, which has led the institutional product to grow. And so I think looking at the world today, and again, looking at the terms that are on offer across Europe, we see less disparity, I think, in terms of how both corporates think about accessing capital markets, but also how investors think about deploying capital. It'd be great if you could go back to your role in Goldman Sachs. And I'd like to ask you, what is your favorite thing about working at Goldman Sachs specifically? The sad fact is I've only worked at Goldman Sachs, so I can't really compare it. I took a year out of industry and worked at a well, British Aerospace, sorry, in aerospace construction. That's when I decided I wanted to be an engineer. And so I didn't end up going back for my career. And obviously looking at other banks, I can only sort of stare in through the window and what other people say. I think the reason I've decided to stay for so long is principally down to the team that we built up over time. I think many of which have also been Goldman's for a long time. And I think an industry that is you know, maybe characterized by a relatively high turnover, I think we've had pretty consistent collaboration between those two members. And I think secondly, because of the client base, we're able to do business with our reach, both with European clients, but also global clients, mean that we work on some of the biggest, most challenging, but in- interesting deals in the market. And touch wood, long may that continue. As the final question, it's always a question I like to ask, but if you had any advice that you could give to the students of LSE in terms of pursuing their career, what would it be? I think whatever career you end up choosing, you're going to have a career for a long period of time. I think you should have to find something that you enjoy doing. And that may change over time. It's rare that the first career choice that you choose is definitively the, the one that you're going to do for 40, 45 years. And so I think the current generation, so your generation of graduates, I think will be characterized by doing, probably having multiple careers and careers that sort of evolve over time. And I think that's great. But I would just, at every step of the way, try and do something where you feel that you're growing as a person and learning and try and do something that you enjoy doing. Life's too short to do something that you don't. Thank you. That was a great answer. I'm sure the students of LSE will, will appreciate it and appreciate you coming on to the podcast. I think that Howard Marks' episode has a worthy challenger. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you for having me.